1: Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the things you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me, of course, is the guru, Duncan Castles, who brought you the news before it becomes news, of Josie Mourinho uh, joining Roma in Serie A two weeks ago. That's two weeks ago, long before anyone else was reporting the interest of the club in the Portuguese manager, which has been confirmed on a three-year contract before anyone else had uh, even mentioned it. In fact, many other people were quoting Maurizio Sarri the former Juventus and Chelsea manager, for that post. We'll also be bringing you news on Tottenham manager situation, as well as Manchester United and the Glazers' attempts to appease fans, and also what might happen at Celtic with regards to their search for a new head coach. Duncan, we'll start with Manchester United. It's our information that the Glazers are remaining very, very recalcitrant regarding the fan protests and any attempt to force them to sell the club or indeed move to a different model of ownership, which includes fans. We've been told that they will attempt to appease fan protest and fan discontent with a marquee signing this summer. Now, Duncan, this is a strange one because... After what's happened with the ESL and the fact that Joe Glazer was named as a vice president of that particular, what now looks like a failed episode in football, but clearly Manchester United were very, very much at the heart of it. It's caused Ed Woodward his job in terms of being executive vice chairman. We understand that a striker in particular is their priority, obviously. Uh, there are a few, there's probably three who are available, who are of the level that Manchester United would covet. One would be Harry Kane at Tottenham Hotspur. Another would be, obviously, Erling Haaland at Borussia Dortmund. And the third would be Kylian Mbappe, who you've reported consistently would prefer a move to Liverpool or Real Madrid. In that case, it would be Dance with the time for Manchester United and Mina Raiola with regards to Erling Haaland and it would be kind of dance with the devil Daniel Leverage when it comes to um, strikers and Tottenham Hotspur moving players to Manchester United uh, as we've seen in the past as well. Do you think that given what we've seen over the past 48, 72 hours with regards to fan protests that simply palming the fans off with a big money signing is going to be enough to keep them content, if you like, for next season?
0: I don't think it will be enough to keep a large percentage of the Manchester United supporters content. That group of supporters have been consistent in their opposition to the Glazer ownership of the club since before it even began. Um, And I I think this is very important to consider here this isn't new for the Glazers, unfortunately. Um, There were huge protests when the takeover took place in 2005, that leveraged buyout that was um, constructed by that outgoing executive vice chairman, Ed Woodward, when he was at J.P. Morgan. Um, The massive debts that were taken on to finance the takeover, um, the debt level is still there at the club, although the interest payments have come down from a level that was over £100 million a year at one point to something that's um, in financial terms manageable, given Manchester United's revenue these days. Um, but that has been a persistent and justified point of complaint by supporters. That And if you look at the Glazers out recent um, airplane Um, protest over Elland Road. Um, They now talk about £2 billion being taken out of the club by the Glazers during those 16 years of ownership. So they had it in 2005. They had it in 2010. You have the League Cup final where Manchester United supporters almost en masse attended in green and gold, the the symbol of um, protest against Glazers. You've had David Beckham picking up a, a scarf when he came back to Old Trafford. Um, to play um, a green and gold uh, scarf. You've had people like Patrice Evra as Manchester United, very prominent Manchester United players, expressing their sympathy for that protest. They're still here. They're, they're experiencing, again, what they experienced before. It was, I, I think it's fair to argue, the most dramatic and um, effective uh, my understanding was that uh, part of the planning, and this 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 planning went on, to uh, protest at, at this match against Liverpool, what, the most prominent Manchester United fixture to the end of the season, one that was going to be covered by Sky. It went on, I'm told, for a couple of weeks, and people within the organisation, I'm told, intended to have the game cancelled because that would have the biggest impact and lead to people like Sky and everyone else talking about the protests against the Glazers during their their live coverage time. Um, There are elements that I think have been rightly condemned. Um, This was not a fully peaceful process. It was intended to be a a peaceful protest, but there was um, police officers injured. Um, there was also supporters who were attacked and there's there's footage of the of the police attacking them in return. It wasn't uh, wasn't a uh, as clean a protest as could have been. but um, I, th- I think as as other people have have commented, um, where exactly do Manchester United supporters go to try and effect change at their club? They have tried many other Ways of um, protesting against the Glazers over these years, and, and they feel that nothing's changed. Um, they make a very good point that Joel Glazer has barely spoken, and the Glazer family have barely spoken to them directly during that 16 years of ownership. After the Super League, the apology that Joel Glazer put out, he, he committed to greater communication with the supporters. Um, but what happens? They, they have a fans' forum a few days later, and they send the lame duck, uh, outgoing, resigned Executive Vice Chairman Ed Woodward to talk to that fans forum rather than a member of the, the Glazer family. Um, when they make a statement after um, the, that protest at, at Old Trafford at the weekend, they make it clear that they will be um, sanctioning season ticket holders and individuals they found to have broken um, rules and, uh, and engaged in criminal activity. They, they talk about the police it being a police matter um, to, uh, to, for the, the criminal damage to be punished. Uh, and then they finish their statement by saying, we remain committed to dialogue and engagement with our fans through the Fans Forum and other appropriate channels, which I think if I'm a Manchester United supporter, I see that as a slap in the face so you can't support what the Glazers are doing here, but from the you asked me the question about will it make a difference. I'm not sure it will. I think there is a there's this bunker mentality about the Glazer family. And it it can't be understated how much they avoid communicating with most people in football. They they run a very close circle. The Glazers don't talk to agents, they don't engage in um, the football activity in the, in the manner that most club owners will do. They have their lieutenants at the club, of which Ed Woodward has been a very prominent one until he was um, forced into this resignation over the Super League. Those lieutenants do the day-to-day football business. Guys like Matt Judge and Woodward talk to agents and set up deals. The Glazers give approval for, for spending on players and spending on trivial matters you know, such as uh, furniture at the training ground. And, and they basically insulate themselves from all of this. And they have 16 years of experience of running the club that way and, uh, and not seeing things change. So how do they respond to it to appease the fans? Well, a standard tactic in the past has been to go out and uh, at least give the impression of, of signing significant players. They've got a manager at the moment who they're backing who wants improvements at centre forward who would like to bring Erling Haaland to the club. Um, I understand that he's been told that there will be a bid for, a big bid made for a, a prominent striker this summer. So you run through that process of Let's get back to the football. Let's get back to the transfer talk, which they love. They love the social media engagement that involves. They brag about it in their investor calls. Um, let's bring just enough in to keep the supporters happy. Um, and let's move on to the next season. And let's use what, one of the tools they have. Um, and it, this is you know no fault of Uli or Solshars, but he is a very effective um, weapon for them. In uh, allowing this protest to die away because he's extremely popular with the supporters. And there are, there are a number, you know, a big percentage of the supporters who want to see Solskjaer succeed. And I think they're going to be, you know, satisfied and happy if they see progress, what can be regarded as progress on the field and good results. So it, you ask me what I think the Glazer strategy will be. It will be to ride it
1: out. They have obviously um, made um, changes. In the football department, the appointment of Darren Fletcher as director of football. Uh, Matt Judge's position has been changed as well with regards to development. Uh, Ed Woodward is obviously on his way out and they are looking for a new chief executive. It appears from the outside that they are trying, uh, and I I say they, meaning the Glazer family, to um, in some way... uh, Change the culture at the club with regards to employing people who actually know things about football, um, which Edward doesn't seem to be, and um, improving the quality of the uh, recruitment policy as well. However, fans, you know, are they are they so gullible, Duncan? That you know, spending. You know, ninety, hundred million pounds on a on a new player in the summer will make all of the troubles go away.
0: It's a it's a huge fan base. I think you've got to separate out the the long term supporters from some of the the newer supporters who who the club, who Richard Arnold, who Ed to act- actively built up, who are aren't necessarily based in in the UK, and. Um, and are more interested in the football than the than the ownership of the club. I think all of the supporters are more interested in the football than the ownership of the club, but there are the, the guys who see that the the football is inextricably linked to the ownership and the way the club is run you, you say they're moving towards people who understand the culture of the club Darren Fletcher we did a long podcast on this when they made these changes, and Darren Fletcher is a very competent individual he thinks a lot about football he understands the game but they have elevated him into a position that is quite early in his career to take John John Myrtle is a very good football professional with a huge amount of experience in the game but again um, these were the kind of easy appointments this this is the the let's let's throw a Man, former Manchester United player who's popular with the supporters as a name to the fans make him a spokesman for the decisions let's not spend money on bringing an external football director in who is at the top of the European game in terms of recruitment because that will cost more money and will mean more radical changes to the way we run the club and, and the Glazers want to be in fundamental control of, of spending um, Again, we've talked in the podcast how our information is. It's likely that they will go for an internal appointment for chief executive. Um, the, the, the noises we're hearing is it's probably going to be a promotion for um, what I think there's a candidate list of three people, which is Richard Arnold, uh, chief financial officer Cliff Beatty and, and Matt Judge. Um, so again, you're avoiding radical changes to the operation of the club. By sticking to a core group of people that have been working with you for a long time and who you trust and and who you uh, you want to keep the the system and, and the ball rolling in a way that you can you can keep taking money out of the club each year in terms of directors payments dividends um, you secure Champions League football uh, and you go back to that long-term goal which was exposed by the super league project which is to take Manchester United into a scenario where they have guaranteed revenues and much bigger revenues from playing the top clubs in European football on a more regular basis if they can do it in a closed shop system or at least closed shop no relegation threat to them similar to the NFL similar to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers which they they run in America perfect if they do it within the project big picture scenario where they move more of the Premier League revenues to the top six clubs and to themselves, and gain the ability to sell direct to their massive international fan base um, rights to individual games, then they can radically increase the revenues. That's what they're about. Um, they will they will chase these players, and Erling Haaland is 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 clearly a strong candidate. riola is trying to to market him. Has um, been talking this week about how. Uh, Madrid in Spain about how Madrid and Barcelona, uh, can can they afford to miss the opportunity to get on the Erling Haaland train? Um, Harry Kane is unsettled at Tottenham. Uh, that I think there's an opportunity mm-hmm. if you if you push at that door um, to try and get Kane to Manchester United. The question is whether you can get Levy to sell Kylian and Mbappe. I think will be very difficult for them. I think Mbappe will re- resist that move. But again, you could you could orchestrate an attempt to buy the player and run it through the summer. Uh, we've Again, we've seen the Glazers do this before. They know the value of transfer sagas. They know the, 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 the amount of media engagements they can get. You go bo- back to Paul Pogba, a deal that was sorted out weeks in advance of being announced and run through the attention-grabbing social media, the, the, the newspapers and the TV for weeks because it was good advertising copy for the club another example um the eric baies this is, this is a, a relatively minor one eric baies contract renewal was actually agreed the week of the super league it was done and it was signed it was completed they held that back for the next week because they wanted a good news story to release in the in the following week they wanted to time that announcement for best value for themselves that's typical of the glazers manchester united I would like to think that the fans' protest can change this, and I, and I understand that they're going to. The next step in the protest is going to be to attack uh, and protest directly to the sponsors that um, provide United with over 200 million pounds of commercial revenue each year, make their life hard, and uh, and and try and put pressure on, on one of those uh, important financial streams for the Glazers. I'd like to think this can work. I'd like to think that Boris Johnson's um, threat to put a, a, legit, a legislative bombshell underneath the Super League clubs and, and his grandstanding over you know his claims that he stopped the Super League from happening will, will result in radical changes to the ownership of English football clubs. I'd be shocked if that happens, if a Conservative government uh, starts stripping away uh, the share rights of rich individuals who own football clubs. They they are, you know, part of the process of building up this structure, in where you have billionaires um, and and foreign overseas uh, billionaires owning the majority of the of the uh, of the valuable football assets in this country. I don't see them radically changing that.
1: It's certainly been uh, a massive talking point in the last. Uh, few days with regards to protests, not just at Manchester United obviously but at Liverpool as well and other clubs in the Premier League with regards to the um, upsurge of anti-ESL feeling um, one which of course um, has failed to understand uh, the historic nature of the game in this country Um I'm just, cause I I just don't quite get Duncan when you say that they're going to the Manchester United fans are going to target sponsors. How many Manchester fans can afford six and a half thousand pound watches and uh the other luxury goods that come with Manchester United sponsors? How, how that actually is is going to work?
0: You just got to look at the the huge range of sponsors that Manchester United have taken on board. And and I think it can be an effective weapon if you get a sufficient number of supporters um targeting and 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 causing you know crowding their social the sponsors' social media platforms, crowding their advertising campaigns on on social media domains, saying to them we're doing this because uh we, we have run out of other avenues to protest against the ownership of a club who you do business with, and we would like to see you um, step away from it. And, you know, if you manage to sustain that on a, on a long enough basis, if it does enough damage to particular sponsors, then, then I think those sponsors will look to other clubs. It's not as though Manchester United are the only football club they can sponsor. It's not as though they're sponsoring the most successful club in English or European football anymore they clearly aren't um, since Sir Alex Ferguson has stepped away uh, they, the best they've managed to get in the Premier League is second place they've struggled to qualify for the Champions League on a regular basis, they've got nowhere near winning it um, so I, I, I understand why they're, they're, um, they're pushing down that, that line um, and uh, look they're, they're certainly a very organised fan body uh, and the resistance they have to the ownership is real and significant. The problem, I think, is that the the ownership is very significantly resistant in it in itself, and has it's not just um, the history of ignoring supporter protest in England. They've done the same thing with their with their American um, sports franchise as well. Um, they are. You know they're hardy individuals, and what matters to them is the is the bottom line.
1: Certainly, it's a narrative with regards to um, the combination of um, sponsorship, money, and uh, how much that means to clubs, with regard to um, the common and garden supporter who buys his season ticket for him and perhaps his son, daughter, etc., etc. Something which obviously is what is splitting the opinion in English football right now, a former...
0: I think think one thing to note here, and I think the groups resisting the Glazers are aware of this, is that they have an opportunity because Sky have actively gone against the owners of the big six clubs. Uh, Sky knew that they were not getting the broadcast contract for the Super League, and um, it was basically blanket coverage of... How bad this was going to be for the game, how it was going to destroy uh the pyramid and and sky have kind of portrayed themselves as the as as of one of the heroes of the resistance for for English football um so there is an opportunity to take advantage of that while sky are going against these uh these six major clubs again, I think you have to ask yourself how long that lasts for because Sky are business economic partners of the game it is a media project um and one designed to make money for themselves and and I will be very surprised if they if they sustain their level of opposition to the big six once things have calmed down a little once the Premier League have started have uh, uh, changed rules and and once the the new season gets rolling again it, it, i I suspect it'll be back to the usual um upbeat um coverage of the, of the the sport in England.
1: Not for the first time on the Transfer Window podcast, you've heard a sentence you probably never thought you would hear, which is that Sky are heroes of the resistance with regards to the Premier League. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they'll be very happy. They may even be uh, putting on their breaking news <laughs> as we speak. Going back to a former Manchester United manager, Jose Mourinho, And um, we have to offer our um, congratulations to uh, Duncan for the fact that he was the first person to break news of Roma's interest and indeed uh, intent to employ uh, Mourinho as their next coach, which has been confirmed uh, on a three-year contract. Duncan, um, what what uh, appeals to Jose? about the Roma project um, with regards to his next step in football management look it's obviously a
0: country where he has been hugely successful uh, two seasons at Inter won the title both years and finished with the only treble that's ever been done by an Italian club Um, taking the Champions League uh, to Milan um ending barcelona's um run of success in the competition um and setting himself up for the for the job in in real madrid he's he is very highly respected in italy um i think it will be certainly an easier place for him to work um from the perspective of how how he's handled by the media i, I think he gave an interview this weekend where he talked about the difference in treatment he receives um in England from the English media compared to other coaches and you got a sense of of, you know the degree of trauma that was involved with it and uh and and the pressure that's invoked upon him. Um he's going he will be the first appointment of the new owners, the Freakins at at Roma. And uh generally if you go to a club as the first appointment of new owners who have a significant Amount of money to invest, you can expect some radical changes. So he's been there before. That's what happened when he went to Chelsea. He was Roman Abramovich's first appointment as Chelsea manager. He got to to make a lot of changes to the squad and built a team that did at that point unprecedented things in, in English football in, in terms of the way they they won the title so quickly, uh, the the low number of goals conceded. So. Of the opportunities pre- presented to him, we we reported in that podcast that Celtic had been the first club um, to contact him, and he'd basically said no, not thanks, thanks very much for getting in touch, but I'm not interested in working at Celtic. Valencia had made an attempt, um, but Valencia did not have the conditions um, for Mourinho to go and have the opportunity to be successful. You're going. Additionally, to Italy at a time where Juventus's long um, dominance of Italian football has been ended by Inter, Mourinho knows that Juventus have big financial issues. They have big organisational issues. He knows that the sports director, Fabio Paratici, is fighting for his position. He knows, as we've reported on the podcast, that Andre Agnelli's um, status as president is in doubt. Um, and he knows that they they're, they're going to struggle in in this summer's market. Inter are are, are for sale. Um, the Suning, the the Chinese conglomerate that owns them, have been instructed to to move away from football and they put Inter on the market. And they put on Inter on the market with significant debts and and um, financial fair play issues of their own. So I can see the attractions in going there. And I, as we've discussed on the podcast because of what happened at Manchester United, because of what happened at Tottenham, um, because of the perception that uh, he had failed at both clubs, there were going to be less offers open to him. So um, he's taken, taken a good one that was made to him early, which allows him to prepare for a new season quite reasonably far in advance and allows him to go effectively straight back to work. Um, the good news for Tottenham is that uh, I'm told the salary is on a par with the one he had at Tottenham. Therefore, their compensation to him will be limited to the period um, until the the new contract starts at Roma on the 1st of July. They were on the hook for um, a whole year's worth of compensation or at least making up his salary to uh, the Tottenham level if, if he'd uh, joined the club who were going to pay him less money than they had.
1: Well, I hope you've asked um, Jose to get Tottenham to pay you that money rather than him. Um, (laughs) Now he's got a new job. Uh, You'll all forgive me if I indulge myself with a little anecdote, uh, and that is when uh, Chelsea went to play in Rome uh, for a Champions League game, I asked Fabio Capello, then England manager, his right-hand man, Franco Baldini, uh, if he could recommend a restaurant in rome that uh, the press lads could go and eat in and he did so uh, it was called il pomodorino and um i said well that's great uh, and he said don't worry they'll treat you like family so um we got a uh, transport to this restaurant which was <laughs> um i have to say uh, quite far outside of the uh, main city of rome um but where the owner rec- uh, Received us with incredible grace and and certainly bonhomie, and uh, then regaled us with the tale that when Roma last won the Scudetto, uh, this is where they went. The team went to celebrate, and Capello cooked in the kitchen the pasta <laughs> for the t- for the team, uh, and they all sat uh, in the uh, patio. And celebrated their scudetto win uh, with uh, their manager as the chef, um, and I have to say it was uh, quite a quite memorable memorable evening um, for us in the uh, in the press brigade as well uh, to hear those stories. So um, I'm sure Jose will be certainly heading to Il pomodorino at some point soon. Interestingly, Duncan, with uh, Roma parting with their current coach, Paulo Fonseca, who is obviously a Portuguese legend in terms of his career, he has been offered to both Celtic and Tottenham Hotspur as replacements for Neil Lennon and Jose Mourinho. Um, Obviously, you're a man who studies Portuguese football and Portuguese Uh, managers what do you think Fonseca would bring if he did come to English football and uh, took over uh, either at Spurs or Celtic
0: Look I I think um, you see the dimension and difference of the two clubs he's being offered to there um, which would underline that he is having to chase a new job I'd be very surprised if if Tottenham were uh, to take him as manager. I think you have some information for us on a candidate who has not been mentioned yet, who uh, Daniel Levy would like to speak to, uh, who I think has would have a far better chance of uh, of taking that job. Um, Fonseca's had a a decent career as a coach. He, he was very successful at Shakhtar Donetsk. Um, uh, Produced some good results in the Champions League while with them as well. Gave um, Pep Guardiola some very significant problems during that period. Uh, at Roma, it's been difficult for him, um, but he's gone through two uh, different sets of owners, American owners, one of whom um, decided he was going to pull the plug on his investment halfway through that period. And, and I think it it, it is... It's a rebuilding time for Fonseca. He has been interested in working in British football, so it's no surprise to me that he uh, is um, being offered for two of the more prominent jobs that are available at the moment. I also don't think he'll be cheap. Um, I think uh, he was paid well at Donetsk and also got a good salary at Roma. So um,
1: let's see where he ends up. Possibly more likely at Celtic than he is at Tottenham, as you say, Duncan. Um, We also understand here at the Transfer Window podcast that um, one coach who is of great interest to Tottenham and indeed who they have inquired about, um, ironically, is um, also in Serie A. And uh, it Gian Piero Gasparini, who has been in charge of Atalanta. We have become something of a, uh, let's just say, um, hero stroke surprise uh, club in European football over the last two years. Gasparini uh, is not the young stroke dynamic coach which uh, Tottenham have effectively described uh, to agents as being their preference um however uh he's a very very experienced manager um he's certainly um an interesting character who um is dependent on a 3-4-3 formation with a hyper offensive uh possession based uh style of play uh he likes to pressure uh opposing teams um in the way that Uh, Jurgen Klopp has done with Liverpool and with Borussia Dortmund as well and has achieved quite spectacular results given the lack of uh, investment and resources compared to the giants of Juventus and the the Milan clubs Um, Gasparini uh, would be difficult to I think um, extract from Atalanta given his success However, the lure of a Premier League job, um, given his uh, time, um, he is now uh, someone who is in the the last part of his career and uh, age 63. But it is our information that a leading agent in Europe has informed Gasparini of Spurs' interest and that he has responded positively.
0: If you look at the, the coaches that, that Levius has failed to secure, so he had Julian Nagelsmann offered to him um, and thought that basically Nagelsmann would be um, the number one choice to replace Mourinho, and and it would be a process of negotiating down the price, um, particularly with Leipzig for securing him. Then Hansi Flick announces he's leaving Bayern Munich, Bayern Munich hire Nagelsman for next season that can't, that has gone um, he tried Eric Ten Hag Ten Hag signs a new contract at Ajax um, you're looking there at, at coaches who play very attacking progressive football Gasparini certainly does that, um, so it doesn't surprise me that Levy is, is trying to find out whether he can secure an alternative figure who has produced very exciting football and good results on both the Italian and European stages over the last few seasons on limited resources. What's not to like if you're Daniel Levy from that uh, combination? (laughs) Um,
1: Except except the price it might cost to get (laughs) him. Well,
0: relatively salary-wise, not particularly high paid at present. It's the extraction free from Atlanta. He's he's second in Serie A at present, albeit in a four-way fight for the, the, the three um, remaining Champions League places after Inter won the title. Um, I think there's an issue as to whether you can convince Gasparini to come to English football. He has been targeted by Inter and he's been targeted by Juventus in recent years and he's resisted those approaches to stay at a club where he's had great success. So I think Levy will have to do something special to convince them to move outside the domain of italian football move into a country with a different language uh, and and take on a a project which two very successful managers have both come to the su- same conclusion that there's an issue with the playing resources at tottenham and there needs to be some radical changes to the squad uh, it will be a sales pitch from from daniel levy to to try and make that happen and remember Juventus are a mess at present. Um, Andre Pirlo is fighting for his survival. There is a very significant chance that Juventus will change coach this summer and Gasparini should be a
1: candidate for that job as well. So, um, Surely pro- Max Allegri is also, as you've reported on the podcast before, of course, is a, is a candidate. There
0: are multiple candidates, but what I'm saying is that um, Gasparini is cheaper than Allegri um, if you want a radical change at Juventus, then then Gasparini will play a more progressive style than Allegri. Um, if you are Tottenham trying to persuade him both to leave uh, Atlanta and come to another league, then it won't make it easy if Juventus are are in the mix saying to him, well, if, if you're finally going to leave Atlanta, um, why not come here? And remember, as we reported with Allegri, his return would be conditional on a number of things. Foremost among them being getting significant control over transfers. He'd want Paratici out of the club because Paratici got him out of the club. And his strongest point of contact there is um, Andre Agnelli. He's, he's very close friends with Agnelli. He's continued. As um, Aurelio Capaldi told us when he was on the podcast recently, he, he meets Agnelli for coffees on a regular basis. They speak. Um, Agnelli kept him on contract for a year, paid him the full salary for a year as a kind of apology for following Paratici and Nedved's advice to to change coach. Um, if Agnelli is turfed out of Juventus by his family, uh, which is a possibility, then I think Allegri coming back to Juventus becomes less likely because he loses that that strong friendship at the, at the helm of the club. Um, but look, it's a progressive move by Tottenham. Um and and at least Levy is thinking out of the box. Out of um, the
1: box, yeah, yeah. It's true, actually, uh, and um, it's something that Spurs have probably lacked in the last decade. Is uh, to look at alternatives which may actually um change the way that the team play and that the club is run. Um, but Gasparini, although he is, as I said, um, not the photo fit for the next manager that Daniel Levy imagined to have, which is a young dynamic manager um, or head coach. uh, He's someone who would bring a lot of stability, experience and respect to the club, which, of course, they're under pressure to produce now uh, given the stadium spend and the fact that they need to win a trophy uh, sometime soon. Uh, and I haven't managed to do that. So, yeah, it's um, an ongoing saga, as many things are uh, coming up to the summer transfer window. It is the first podcast of the week and we will close with our hero and villain section and i will invite duncan to um elect his villain of uh, the last few days in football um
0: very simple on this we'll go back to a video video assistant referees and absurd decisions in the premier league we have lots and lots of them to choose from but uh, peter banks and uh, in combination with Andrew Mariner, it has to be said, because I think Andrew Mariner should have asked to, to see this incident again. Well, Banks not referring um, Mariner to the monitor after John Fleck ran his studs down Giovanni Lo Celso's face in the Sheffield United Tottenham game at the weekend. An absolute clear red card. Um, it should actually just have been Banks saying that's a red card, you missed it, send them off. But at the very least, he has to make Marner go and look at it himself and, uh, and have action taken. What is the point of having VAR with all the damage it does to the game if it cannot um, eliminate and punish individuals engaging that kind of behaviour on the football pitch?
1: Andre Marner, all at sea. Who would have thought it? Uh, my hero um, of this last few days... Um, has to go to Mikel Antonio of West Ham United, who um, scored two goals, very good goals as well, um, in uh, which uh, managed to cement West Ham's uh, challenge and indeed their possibility of playing Champions League football next season. But it was his post-match interview which particularly uh, tickled me because uh, he had an absolute Western supermare, as (laughs) footballers call it, Um, when he had a ball at his feet eight yards out and uh, managed to knock the ball from his right foot onto his left foot, which caused it uh, to not hit the target. And in the after-match interview, he said, in obviously a very kind of uh, self-possessed way, um, I was trying to score the perfect hat trick, uh, having had done with one with my head and one with the right foot. I thought I'd better do left foot as well. <laughs> uh, so good on you, Mikel Antonio, uh, for being, you know, in that, that groove, as it were, of um, being uh, self-effacing uh, with regards to your hat trick possibility.
0: Sounds like the kind of thing you would have tried to do in the football pitch, Ian.
1: Many times, <laughs> <laughs> has to be said. But, but as our as our listeners know, um, I I absolutely, um, you know, I, I'm in favour of um, when you bring kids up through the ranks that you must teach them left foot and right foot, and not have them to have a. Uh, Favoured foot. I just don't understand why professional footballers, you know, rely on the Rabona, as it were, um, to score goals or make crosses because they should be able to kick with both feet at least. Duncan, do you do that?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I look, out, I'm in favour of. of- of uh, trying to work with both feet and get as uh, competent with both as possible but a friend of mine, uh, David Carey, who I used to work with at, at St Andrews University, um, did a study on, on footedness and uh, both in amateur footballers and professional footballers and uh, what he found was it makes very little difference at the, the top end of the game that actually being one footed, if you are supremely skilled with that one foot, is fine in most aspects. Um, I think we're, we're talking top, top level where you get the advantage of being, and, and, to, of being two-footed and going above your peers.
1: Well, um, I would have to rebuke that particular argument and say that at Euro 2004, when I was playing for the England media team, when we actually won the Euro 2004 <laughs> championship... Unlike the golden generation who failed uh, in the quarterfinal, I took a penalty in the semi-final, which was I was made to retake. I took it with my right my right foot to start with, and then confused the keeper by taking it with my left foot on the second attempt and scored. And we went on to win that trophy. And Gary Neville has not forgiven me since for the <laughs> fact that we did win a trophy and he didn't.
0: Anyway, I, I did say top level Ian. Well, clearly that is the top level, isn't it? (laughs) Journalist European Championships. This is incredible. I think there's quite a few levels of football above that one.
1: Uh, Well, look, I've got a medal and they haven't. So (laughs) (laughs) as I often say to many of them, this has been the first Transfer Window of the week. If you have enjoyed it, then please engage with us on social media at TransferPodcast.com on twitter and on instagram and facebook also give us a five-star review on itunes when you get the chance and if you're listening to on youtube then please turn on your notifications and you'll be first to know when the next podcast comes out we will be back with you later in the week until then stay well and thank you for listening